Welcome to Professors at Work, a weekly show at the American University of Beirut, where we discuss with professors and scholars their research, what they're finding, and why it matters. We're delighted to have as our guest this week, Dr. Carmen Jeha, who is Associate Professor in the Political Studies and Public Administration Department and has done extensive research on a variety of areas that all kind of link together around the general theme of gender equality, women's representation, protest movements, and relationships between political systems and citizens. Uh, Carmen, welcome and thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. So you've done a, quite a bit of work, and especially in recent years, because you focus a lot on uh, political participation of women, you look at sectarian issues, you look at protest movements, uh, and, and all of these are in the news in Lebanon in particular, but also in other places like Iraq, like Algeria. So tell us, what is the core theme that motivates your research, and, and why did you focus on this? So Rami, I'm very much interested as to why the Lebanese system, its power sharing system, hasn't been reformist after the civil war. And I come at this question, my PhD is in IR and I've been working here for six years as a full-time scholar, but I do very much uh, feel that I'm connected to what's happening in broader politics and that's why I'm in academia. So yes, my research questions, they seem like they're scattered, but they really are about how power sharing institutions, how is it that politics and politicians are uh, acting as obstacles to reform in particular areas that could make Lebanon better, namely women's representation, young people's rights, citizenship, and, and things like that. And if you look at this theme, it's actually very uh, prevalent all across the Arab world because we're a very non-democratic, non-participatory region. Absolutely. Actually, I argue that the power sharing system in Lebanon acts like authoritarian regimes in co-opting, uh, oppressing and counter-revolutionizing against any demands for change. And although my work is regional, I do research in 12 MENA countries, particularly around women's participation. My vantage point of being at AUB and being Lebanese is really my obsession with why is it that change doesn't happen in Lebanon. So why is it that change doesn't happen in Lebanon? Yeah, Tell us, it's, it's a, <laughs> what have you found? <laughs> it's a good question. So a lot of this, we know it intuitively, but I've gone about it uh, through very empirically grounded research. So I've done work with refugee communities, with women, with protesters, with activists, with journalists, just to try to understand what, where is it that whenever you try to shake the pillars of the system, clientelism, sectarianism, corruption, weapons, that you really get uh, set back. And, and the reason why is because the foundations of the system rests upon agreement among a bunch of elite men that basically led the war, granted themselves amnesty and decided to govern together. And at every juncture where they feel their power is shaken, whether it's geopolitics or from internal protest demand mobilization, they come together again to protect the system that keeps them in power. Well, they've been able to do this for many, many years for various reasons. The uh, Once there was Syrian influence and then after the war, the reconstruction and what you mentioned, the amnesty they gave themselves. Uh, but uh, uh, when things started to get really tough for Lebanese citizens two, three, four years ago, there were more popular protests. And now, of course, in the last year, we've had serious protests in Lebanon. What is it that you think keeps them trying to stick to this system that they've developed and that they dominate, even in the face of massive popular complaints. So I study both like the internal dynamics of popular mobilization and the external dynamics. Means we know external dynamics that, you know, politicians have a vested interest. They have an investment, a physical, material, and martyr investment for the last 30 years in this system. And this is what oppresses externally popular mobilization. But also there are internal mobilization dynamics that are problematic in the sense that there still isn't a popular 
bigger political opposition platform that is democratic, that is participatory, that also weakens the opposition and makes it possible for the system to be resilient and kind of piece itself together. Don't forget in 2012 to 2013, a lot of the scholars were writing that Lebanon, you know, is going to be at the Lebanese system is at threat because of the Syrian conflict and the Syrian war, but it wasn't. It was extremely resilient, non-reformist, terrible against human rights, but very resilient. So I think that, you know, this investment, they're very much deeply rooted in local politics, municipalities, unions. This is why revolutionary work is going to take a really long time to build a solid political platform to confront them. So let's talk a little bit about the, what you call the revolutionary work, the uprisings, the protests, uh, and then we'll talk a little bit more specifically about women. But what would you say have been the main lessons that you've learned from observing the protests, being as activist yourself, talking to your students who've been out on the streets, and researching them as a scholar, and, and all the things that uh, have been going on in Lebanon. Let's just take the last year. What are the main lessons you learn about this system? So I spent a lot of time thinking and writing and talking to people uh, about the 2011, the few weeks experience that was Asqat al-Nizam al-Ta'ifi, and then a lot of time reflecting on the 2015 protests that emerged as an anti-garbage movement, but were also political. Asqat al-Nizam al-Ta'ifi is to bring down the sectarian system, yes. regime. Yes, so in 2011, you know, we got inspired by what was happening in Egypt and elsewhere, and there was a short, like, three, four week movement, quite big, but short, short-lived, and so we looked at that, and then 2015 as well, uh, what's started out as a revolt against the trash crisis became very political. What I mean by political is that activists, and this is what happened in the 2019 revolution, were very much upset because of the economic system. There were deep socioeconomic grievances, but it was political in the sense that they framed it as a political problem. Five-year-old kid, 85-year-old man would tell you, this is because of the political class. It wasn't a demand-driven uh, protest or series of protests in the sense, please could you do recycling, please could you solve poverty. It was like, it's you guys' fault you know, you need to be held accountable. This is why we're poor. There's no other reason for us to be poor. And, and this really became clear about five, six, seven years ago. Yes, started to become clear in 2015, I would say. Right. And so the lessons learned, I mean, there are plenty, but I'll tell you uh, one big lesson from the state, and it's a very repeated pattern, is that they respond first by co-optation. They try to co-opt the narrative and say, oh, you want environmental rights? You want civil liberties? We want civil liberties. We invented civil liberties, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So co-opting demands, oh, you want, we have been saying this for 100 years. So they yeah. try to co-opt demands or co-opt people, leaders, right? And if that doesn't work, they try to go into oppression, repression, including violence. And we've, you know, we've already had three young men die, I mean, in cold blood since the 2019 protest. So it really varies. And now we're seeing greater oppression yes. uh, following activists on Twitter, so on and so forth. This is a very typical pattern. And this is where I say power sharing acts more like authoritarianism than it does a consociational democracy. I mean, this is typical. What I'm telling you isn't new. It's just our ability to document it and get activists to feel that the scholarship that's coming out represents them as well and listens to their voices. So it's not only scholars in the global north writing about protests, it's us together trying to build that narrative and saying, okay, this is what we know three years ago, what can we do better? Um, right. And AUB really you know, gives you that advantage to be able to navigate. So we bring activists to the university. We talk a lot, the university goes out there. In the protest movements, we didn't come back to the class. We said the street is the class. So actually took our students down there. So that, you know, that, that space of being able to write but go back to people and think about it is teaching us. But the fight is, is heavy, it's difficult. Right, and, and it's uh, a problem that we see across the Arab world. If you look at Algeria, Iraq, Sudan is a little bit changing now, but you still have this very powerful 
political entrenched elite. So some places it's sectarian, some places it's military, some places it's something else. Um, clear, as you've explained, how they do what they do to stay in power. So why have the protest movements, which have been so huge, millions of people, and in some cases over years, why have the protest movements not been able to break through, e except possibly in Sudan? Yeah, I think this is where the case-by-case case approach is important to understand the different nuances. I think every country has different type of local dynamics. Some countries have strong worker unions. Some countries don't even have you know, liberal arts universities. Some countries don't even have a, a vibrant civil society. I think it's very different. Uh, but I think for Lebanon, it's only a matter of time because the political class has lost any shred of credibility at solving anything. And you see this, you feel this, and colleagues are writing about this from a sociological perspective, others from a journalism perspective, myself from a political studies perspective. So I think for Lebanon, it will only be a matter of time. And I think in every country has its different trajectory. Tunisia, for example, is much more hopeful, again, because of institutions that were there pre-revolution. But I'm very, very hopeful for Lebanon. And from your studies, do you sense that the uh, activists, the protesters, um, who are challenging the system openly, have learned uh, things in the last, uh, well, seven, eight, nine months, or whatever, ten months, since last October when the uprising began and turned into uh, a revolution, uh, but still couldn't make a breakthrough. Do you think the activists are rethinking new strategies now? So I think that uh, you know, Lebanon is really, really small in that it allows you to travel from Tripoli to Kferremen in the same day. And we did that you know, many, many times and talked to people. And I think that there's you know, two or three really big realizations. One, that this is a very oppressive, violent uh, state that will send police and army to kill people. And that is a serious realization among activists who've been largely sort of you know, left on the sidelines. And OK, bravo, you know, nice people demanding change. And, and this is a very serious realization. Second, I think it's this move from conformity, citizens as conformists, we need to follow the law, to citizens as revolutionaries. You know, slavery was legal. Following the law isn't always good, which gets us into the gender stuff. We have a lot of laws that are, that are actually you know, ought to be criminalized. So it's this realization among protesters. So the state says, you know, you shouldn't be swearing or cursing. It's illegal. And the and this protester says, well, there's nothing good about being legal. <laughs> Sectarianism is legal. So there's this other thing. And I think the third thing is this very growing maturity among activists is that we need to coordinate. We need to listen. Perhaps we won't agree on everything. I mean, you know, I used to be, you knew me when I was younger, you're sort of this utopian right. activist. But now it's like we have to make compromises as long as the value is that we need to hold accountable the same guys who did the war who still meet and decide about our lives. Right. So let's shift into the woman's issue, woman's representation, woman's participation. You've worked um, in, 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 in civil society groups that have tried for years to promote more democratic and, and participatory and accountable governance. Um, and you've studied a woman's representation. Uh, you've studied training of women to get into parliament and all of these issues. And, but you're, you're seeing that there's a kind of a, a limit to making progress uh, in, in this field. So where do you see now the situation is with a woman's representation and the sectarian system? Where is the bottleneck? Yeah, so I am convinced now after a couple of years of researching this and thinking about it and talking to women that the only way to get women into power is to have political platforms like parties that will push for the representation of women formally. Any other way, so I've studied a lot of donor programs, I have a paper coming out on state feminism, 
And all this women empowerment business in the, in the Arab region, and especially in Lebanon, has only bolstered the image of the state in saying that they're trying to empower women. The topics and the, and the ways that they teach women to be politically empowered, empowered don't fit into the context, right? So if right. you are operating in a context of patriarchy, sectarianism, clientelism, you need financial capital, you need political capital, you can't build that in a workshop. Right. That needs to be grown with you, and that is built when you create a... That's why in the revolution it was easier for women to participate, because the politics of it was largely horizontal. So right. it was naturally participatory. Women showed up, you know, they were asked to do things, they asked to do things, they took upon them their place. But when you go to traditional political parties, women are most of the time making sandwiches, sitting behind the za'im, taking notes, waiting for someone to recruit her, to promote her, um, and harassment very prevalent, same in the private sector, I think you'll talk about that mm -hmm. uh, with, the, with some colleagues later. So mm -hmm. yeah, so my, fi you know, my finding is there's really no empowerment until there are institutions, and this is really my area, how can institutions be responsive, inclusive, participatory? We need new political parties. And political parties um, have never been seriously attempted in Lebanon outside of the sectarian system. Yeah, so they'll tell you otherwise, huh? because I, I, I've, I speak a lot, I mean, I speak a lot of to the men and the women and political, and they'll say otherwise, but they'll say things like, we're really trying, we believe in it, and this is what we're doing, we're doing a training program. They create women's branches, um, which is problematic because it takes women away from the center of decision-making and politics and makes them a club, like right. a breakfast club on their own. Um, I was at the National Commission for Lebanese Women for a year and a half and then I quit because I, I wanted to see how the, how the government looks uh -huh. at it. And it was very problematic because they'll say something like, we believe in it, but then 2018 parliamentary elections happen and almost no women won, five women won, because right. they put women as fillers. So I think, I think it's problematic because the pillars of empowering women would challenge the core of the state. Right. If you really want to empower women, you change religious uh, codes. That right. can't happen. You want to empower women, yeah, and 20 men are going to leave parliament. Who are going to be these 20 men? It's very, very political uh, in that sense. And it goes beyond the importance of women's participation itself into reforming these structures, making them participatory, democratic, open to everybody, really. Some countries in the Arab region have tried quotas. What do you think of quotas for women in parliament or, say, local government? I'm all for it. I know the people that would say that, well, that's not fair. Women should make it on their own. Why should it be 30%? Why can't it be 50-50? Quotas, where they've been instated, have worked. They are intended as a temporary modality so that society and people get used to having women. Sure, the first round may, of women may not be the best. But you know what? One, one woman told me in one of my interviews, she said, the men in this, in this country, and she's in a big political party, so she's not being like an activist judging, she said, the men in this country failed to pick up the garbage. And every time a woman wants to run, they tell her, oh, you're not competent, it's not your time. So definitely, I'm all for quotas, not forever. Quotas are bad, but hey, better than a sectarian quota, have a gender quota, why not? Uh, uh, and do you feel that um, women being involved in, as candidates, or organizers in new political parties or groups that actually run for uh, office is a realistic proposition? Yes, it's very realistic. It's also generationally uh, more, more realistic. So if you look at a lot of the younger groups coming out now, um, a lot of the spontaneous movements, because, because women comprise 50-60% of society, it's right. normal to find them as long as, and this is the challenge, and this is what I've been thinking about with a lot of the feminist groups, writing, I wrote a small piece for Chatham House on this, is the move from this informal revolutionary into the formal organized, and that's tricky business. But yeah, if you can formalize it and, and create you know, proper bylaws and you know, create a program, I think it's very doable. Well, the other problem you get, of course, then, is that Parliament is an institution in Lebanon and many other Arab countries where parliaments exist 
that uh, doesn't actually have the full power. The full power is behind the scenes with tri tribal, sectarian, ideological, religious, uh, other leaders. Um, so is parliament the focus of what you see as the route towards more women's empowerment? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I have a paper, it's called Sharing Power and Faking Governance, and it's all about the fake, the, you know, the, the veneer of, of governance. So actually it's the dialogue table where the men get together and decide. It's the religious courts, it's backdoor dealing. But I think that that's common in many parts of the world. And I think if you have a representative parliament that can call them out and says deliberations happen here, this is the House of Legislation, this is the representative of the people, then we can begin to challenge that narrative. But if we have no power whatsoever, they can continue meeting you know, behind the doors, off the screen, secret uh, meetings and making decisions. So I think there's no other way because if you can't you know, create a dent at the municipal parliamentary level, no way you can create a dent at the national dialogue table where 14, 15 men meet every two, three years and decide whether we're going to have a war or not. So I think there's no other entry point besides beside parliament and when I when a parliament institution all other institutions like you need women in the judiciary already there are 51% of, of women judges in Lebanon and that's very good 51%, 51%. we're more men, women judges than men wow. because it's regarded as a competency base there's examinations so uh -huh. women do better it's one of the less corrupted sectors and so when I mean parliament I mean all other institutions municipalities unions student clubs all of this has to be parallel but there's no other way one of the interesting things we see around the region, uh, especially Sudan and a couple other places, is the role of uh, professional associations, unions. Even in Lebanon, we've seen some independent unions. We've seen a progressive candidate win the lawyers' union election. So do you see the unions as an uh, important mechanism for slow political change? Yeah, it's so important that uh, the political system systematically, the politicians systematically took over the unions as they do with student clubs, with student elections, and you see them. Mm -hmm. I mean, we know, for example, even at AUB, the blues, the yellows, the orange, they uh, vocally campaign with no shame, right? The, the unions are so important that politicians systematically divided them among themselves. There are even unions that are traditionally for the Maronites. This is for, I don't, I don't know, it's systematically destroyed because unions are the only institution, the only platform that gets people from different rank, classes, socioeconomic backgrounds, sects, and allows them to organize around their profession. And particularly those unions that are um, conducive for freedom of expression, freedom of assembly, like the Journalists' Alternative Union, the Lawyers' Syndicate, etc. Right. Yes, these are very important, and, and, and there's a lot of evidence that these played a huge part in the Tunisian revolution right. and in the reformist politics before, after it. Because you need a space to come back and say, we want to create economic opportunity, we want to create jobs, we want to fix contracts, and this all battles clientelism at the core. So yeah. yeah, it's important. It's slow work, but it's extremely important. We only have a few minutes left. If you look at the economic situation in Lebanon, which is quite precarious, uh, do you feel this has weakened or maybe strengthened the hold of the sectarian uh, oligarchy at the top of the political system? Yeah, this is the, uh, where you, want to, you want us to add on, on a sad note, kind of. It's very, very difficult. I've never seen Lebanon like this. I, I, I see it going really, really dark. And I think on the one hand, it goes to discredit the political class to show that they really are responsible for all of this death and destruction right. and financial collapse. On the other hand, the way, the way that geopolitics work, donor aid works, you don't know where the helping hand will come. And 
you know, if we don't uh, hurry up and create these platforms that will convince people of a viable future, because Lebanese people, they're smart. I mean, we're not stupid, we're rational. If we think there's a viable option to get out of this class, we will. But if this class comes and distribute Gulfy money or American money, no, people will, will go back and it goes back to being resilient. Right. So let's end on a, on a more positive note, uh, back to the issue of women's representation and uh, equal rights. One of the striking things about the uprisings here and in other Arab countries has been the really powerful role of women, many of them behind the scenes, many of them out in the open. Um, if you look at the media, you look at the alternative media, you look at the uh, action-oriented activist groups, the women have really been leaders in so many of these groups. And one of the things that I was struck by when I attended some of the demonstrations way back last year in, in, uh, in October and November, the number of young girls, adolescent girls, 14 years old, 15 years old, you would see three or four girls by themselves, not with their parents or their brothers or their school, on their own, down in the demonstrations. So th th this, to me, was a real eye-opener. If you get adolescent girls out in the political uh, field, they may not have been there purely for politics because people were going because it was exciting to be there, but how do you interpret this extraordinary role, uh, deep and wide, of women over the last few years uh, and what it tells us about the future potential to get them organized and into the system? Yeah, so for me it's, it's become rather clear women and young women are the biggest victim in the system and the ones who stand to win the most. So we have the biggest stake in the revolution, the reform working out because, I mean, you don't control your body, your money, your mobility, your bank account, your travel, your citizenship, nothing if you're a woman in this country. And young women are starting to realize it. And for a lot of my students, it doesn't make sense anymore. Like, I understand it. Our generation understands it. Oh, yeah, sectarianism, marriage, etc., inheritance, divorce. For an 18-year-old, she goes like, what? I can't marry this guy or even this girl, right? And I think that it's generational. It is the realization. Don't forget, this is a country where until two years ago, rape was not criminalized. Sexual harassment today is not criminalized. I mean, it's serious, right? You get beat up and you die. And because they're the biggest victims, I think they have the most to gain and this is why they didn't leave the streets and I think it's you know it's on all of us to try to get this organized um, in time for the next election and the next and the next and the next. Mm, well one of the things that we saw recently uh, still see with the COVID pandemic is that woman-led countries have tended to do better than men-led countries so maybe in the Arab world we'll see a sign of that inshallah. Inshallah. So thank you, Dr. Carmen Jaha from the Political Studies and Public Administration Department at AUB. Thank you for our audience for joining us on this session of Professors at Work, where we talk to AUB professors and scholars about their research and their findings and what it means for a better world that we all want to build. Join us again next week. Bye for now. <laughs>